Welcome back to the Maluli Asset Podcast. This is your host, Casey Maluli, and this is episode 375. In this week's episode, we talk about tax planning and why it's so much more than just figuring out how to pay the least amount of tax on a yearly basis. Thanks as always for listening, and we hope you enjoy. I'm here with Brendan and Tom this week. Got the usual suspects here, and we're going to talk about... uh, thread that we saw on Twitter recently from Mitchell Baldridge, who is a CFP and CPA down in Texas. We came across this during the week and we thought it was a good jumping off point for a conversation. The main point of the thread was to focus on what Mitchell referred to as a lifetime effective tax rate. So his main point of the thread was that your highest earning years are really concentrated in our narrow band of your lifetime. He estimates it to be about 30% of your time. So he talks about different strategies for, for doing that. But first, before we go any further, I want to talk about the difference between a marginal and an effective tax rate. Yeah. I think that's so important and and a discussion that a lot of people, a lot of non-CPAs to this day still don't understand the difference between marginal and effective. Uh, Yeah, so marginal rate is in reference to which which tax bracket uh, you fall into and and I think the mistake that you'll often hear is somebody saying, hey, I'm in the 32% 32% tax bracket, like the federal government's taking 32% of my money. Um, it just kind of, the marginal rate refers to uh, the amount of tax on the last dollar of your earnings that falls in that band that the tax bracket specifically refers to. All of the brackets leading up to there have their own separate rates, which are also subject to, but they're lower than that top one. So your effective rate is the blend of all of that and it basically just says hey what what was your tax bill like federally what what did you pay in income tax and what was your gross income before anything came out of it setting aside things like the standard deduction or your itemized deductions but even setting aside things like your 401k contributions or health uh, savings account contributions uh, health premiums things that you pay pre-tax out of your check so very very top line gross income before anything else comes out Take those two numbers, uh, divide the tax bill uh, over, put the tax bill over the uh, the gross income, and that's going to spit out the actual percentage of what what you're paying uh, in tax, and it's often very different than what your marginal rate is. Right. So your effective rate is is your actual rate. Yeah. Right. Essentially, you got to yeah. do some work to get to it. So it's a lot easier to just say, "Hey, so I'm you- in the 32 percent bracket." So those, I mean, those numbers are right on your tax return, though. So, I mean, it's it should be pretty easy to find. It's a good back-of-the-envelope way to, to find it is just go to the line on your tax return that says, this is your total tax. Not refund, not what you owe. This is your total tax. There's a line on there. I forget the number, but this is your total tax. Take that number and divide it into the income that's on the first line. I mean, it's that's, if you own a business, it's going to be different. But if you're com- contributing yeah. to a 401k, it's going to be different. But it gets you close. It gets you closer than citing your marginal rate. So it's an improvement. But right. I mean, most people know their gross income. So if you can get the tax number from your return and then divided you know by by the gross yeah. number because the gross number is not always on 
you can find your gross number on your W-2, W-2 right. um, but it's even tricky to find there because you have to find the correct line that uh, usually the, the one that you could look at that would make sense is like the, Medi- the Medicare. Medicare line Medicare. because there's you know there's no cap on that. So that'll, that'll give you the, it's going to be the highest number that's on there right. and that's going to be the number you want to divide it uh, into to get to your effective rate. And, that's your, a useful and number. that's your effective rate. Yeah. It's important to know that uh, because there's a lot of folks that... You know, we've talked to who say, like you just mentioned, hey, I'm in a 32% tax bracket, but their effective rate may be 19. Right. So, yeah, obviously uh, zero would be preferable, but hey, uh, that's not the world we live in. So, yeah, it's helpful to know the effective rate. I also think that just a gripe I have, instead of this whole convoluted, like how many exemptions are you claiming nonsense when you got to fill out your uh, W-4, uh, for for withholdings, it would be great if we just taught everybody, hey, uh, here's how you calculate your even your anticipated effective rate, and and you could say, all right, I just backed in using last year's numbers and said, hey, it's 14 percent or something, so I want to be safe, so I'm just going to say withhold 16 percent from every check, and that would be better than having people do these insane worksheets where you try to get them to the correct withholding because That's people ridiculous. don't people don't yeah. do it. They yeah. they redid the W-4, like the worksheet that gets you to the withholding uh, in the last couple of years. And I think they made it worse. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. Like it's, and so then people don't withhold the correct amount and everybody's pissed off because they're trying to do the right thing and they think they are. And then they get to the end of the year and they didn't and it's too late. Mm. So this is actually a, a, a shortcut, a trick that I learned from my dad when I had my first W-2 job in 1979. He was like, no, no, no. He goes, just just figure out what your taxes are going to be and we'll divide it into what you made. And that's the percentage. Just tell the payroll guy that this is what you want taken out of your out of your check. And I was like, I've, that's the way I've done it now for 40 something years. So I inadvertently cited grandpa on the podcast. Is what you're saying. <laughs> so, uh, but we will link we to his MySpace page. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> We, but like we, and I do that internally. That's how that's how we withhold here. But that's because it's a family business, and we're allowed to. You can't do that at like HR with a big company. They're not. They're going to tell you no. Like fill out this worksheet, and yeah. it sucks. And yeah. I don't think anybody enjoys doing it. And it doesn't often yield the results that I think people are looking for, which is just, hey, I'd like to satisfy my tax liability and not be surprised. And I don't think that that's too much to ask. So yeah. somebody should fix that. Yeah. Uh, Above my pay grade, though. So. <laughs> so this might be an obvious question, but like, how does how does the marginal versus effective come into the equation when we're building out a financial plan for someone or projecting out their retirement? I can answer through an example if that helps, and Brendan, feel free to clarify on on this. But Suppose you're going through the math with a client and they're discussing doing a Roth conversion. They're converting some of their money that's in their IRA into a Roth IRA, but they have to pay the taxes this year. So they may be in a situation where they're in the 28% tax bracket, but doing that Roth conversion will bump them into the 32% bracket now the marginal effect, the marginal rate really does matter because now you're paying 32 cents on every dollar of that Roth conversion to just do this. You'd be better off waiting until you're in a lower bracket 
Yeah, I think that so you want to be aware of the thresholds where the marginal rates kick into new levels, because mm -hmm. those are often places in planning work where if you're wary of them, you can maximize using empty space that's left in a bracket without going over into a new one. Mm -hmm. Those are often like thresholds too for things like uh, Medicare premiums, like they, they kick in in some of these higher tax brackets. And so, uh, yeah, those I would say that's probably the biggest situation in planning for, for the marginal rates to, to be wary of. Effective rates is, I think, you use, use that more in planning work because that's how, if you have money in pre-tax retirement account, like a 401k IRA, and you want to figure out how much you need to withdraw to fulfill your, your needs on a month-to-month -month basis, you've got to factor in your effective rate as because that's what you're going to want to withhold. Yeah. Um, so you, want, you need to know your effective rate so you can effectively back set into aside. a withdrawal rate and then kind yeah. of just go from there. Yeah. So it's integral to know that, that sort of information. Yeah. That makes sense. So back to the thread from uh, Mitchell Baldridge, one of the things that stood out to me was he suggested to folks that they don't start saving in a pre-tax account until they're in the 32% marginal bracket. So this, the 32% bracket is, I mean, that's the third highest one. Right. Yeah. So people like me and you, Brandon, are 20s, 30s, maybe even into their 40s. He's saying don't start saving in an account like a 401k. He suggested to use this time to really maximize the Roth, pay down um, student debt, and to, you know, kind of get your foundation in order. But how do we, so yeah, it is important, but how do we, I know we always say time in the market, get started investing as early as you can. You know, the 401k is usually the easiest way for people because it's through work. It's the easiest way for people to start getting invested in the market. So how do we kind of balance those two things out? Well, the first thing I'll, I'll say, and it's probably like the eighth or ninth most important thing, but uh, I, I think more than 50% of 401k plans today offer a Roth option in their 401k, but we've done almost reverse planning with a few uh, special situations where folks have come to us and they said, you know, I've got $40,000 socked away in a 401k uh, that I, I no longer work at that company, or it's sitting in an IRA, or wherever the money is, it's it's in a um, a pre-tax account. But I've got twenty-five or thirty thousand dollars of credit card debt, and I'm having trouble making ends meet. Now, this is someone who got the message that saving for retirement is very important, but they are not using the proper path right. for this, and so it. To even talk about Roth versus pre-tax contributions, you have to even go a step further back and just say, where are you with debts and debt management? Let's talk about student loans. Let's talk about saving money for buying your first home. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about things like that, which are going to become, those events are going to happen before your retirement. Right. So you're kind of putting the cart a little before the horse when it comes to things like that. I think, too, that you don't have to do one or the other here. So, yeah. like, if you want to get started saving in your 401k and it doesn't offer uh, a Roth option, 
you can do so, but but maybe think about how to right size that in comparison to something like, uh, you know, so do do your pre-tax 401k contributions maybe to get a company match, which are always pre-tax sure. dollars too. Yeah. So you, so you do it up to that, and then consider from there maybe uh, if you're eligible, you know, based on your income, uh, to doing a Roth IRA if if you can't do the Roth 401k through work, or depending on the flexibility you need from the money, maybe you do a brokerage account and and build the base, but I think the goal should be to get that time in the market and to, and to do that, you know, as soon yeah. as possible to the extent that your cash flow allows you to. But uh, yeah, I mean, you want to carefully consider where you're sending the dollars to, and uh, it it doesn't just have to be one or the other. Mm-hmm. You, you can kind of spread things around a little bit. Alongside talking about getting your foundation in order, uh, part of the thread was that he works with people who weren't as tax efficient as they could have been, meaning that they, you know, put all or a good chunk of their money in pre-tax accounts and then ended up paying for it later, um, meaning down the road when they were maybe in higher tax brackets. So he says, I meet lots of people who tried to be tax efficient here that ended up paying for it tenfold. What does he mean by that? So uh, we we see this from time to time in our practice where folks have been really diligent about socking money away in their retirement plan. They've, maybe they've been maxing their contributions out year after year after year, but they just don't have any resources outside of that plan. Hmm. And so they're in a situation where they're saying, hey, you know what, maybe I can retire at, at 52 or 53 or some young age but they can't tap into the resources in a 401k or an IRA, but they don't have cash on hand either. They're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, if, so like if you don't diversify your tax base and you just throw everything into a pre-tax, you're basically inadvertently, I guess, whether you realize it or not, you're, you're, you're presetting your tax rates from RMD age through the end of your lifetime because you're going to reach a threshold eventually with all those pre-tax dollars where your distribution each year is mandated by the IRS via your required minimum distribution now, now age 72 and beyond for folks. So if you have X dot, you can basically do the math if you, if you are able to assume you know, whatever rate of return you think you're going to have and take a look at what your future RMD is, you know, project to be. And, and you might reach a point based on what your needs are going to be in the future, at least as things exist today, where you might want to think about channeling the same dollars that you've been maxing your 401k with into something else like a brokerage account, because it at least gives you some flexibility of saying, hey, I'm going to use these dollars and pay these taxes when I want. Like your your tax bills for age 72 through whenever uh are basically like set in stone more or less at, at that point in time once you've sent the dollars into the retirement account unless mm. you're going to do a Roth conversion at some point point. and I, I think you know to expand on that point is if you have been really diligent about channeling all this money into a pre-tax account and it has compounded well over time Brendan, you and I have sat with folks here and just the the look on their face when we tell them, yeah, your required minimum distribution in, you know, you, at age 72 is going to be 
$100,000 a year and they, they fall out of their chair. They're like, oh my God, I, I'm gonna be paying so much in taxes. I don't need the money. What do I do? There's nothing to do about it. You, you take your distribution, you pay the tax and that's it. And if there's surplus left over, then obviously like you, you channel that to the brokerage account then. So it's like, you're gonna do that at some point unless your needs are higher than the RMD amounts project to be in the future. And in, in which case then no big deal. You would have withdrawn the money you know, based based on what you needed anyway. But if it's not that, then and you're going to diversify by paying tax on the RMD, taking what you need, and sending the surplus to a brokerage account. Let's say you could try to begin to. It's going to be a little bit like you know turning the Titanic, so to speak. But like, don't don't. We're not saying like stop saving into your 401k, right. but like you could start saving into your Roth 401k with the same amount of dollars, or you could start saving into a brokerage account and continue to invest it so like your your nest egg will project to be the same in the future in fact it might even be more valuable even if it, you know, on paper it doesn't look the same because uh re realistically the after-tax amount of your nest egg in retirement is what you eat so uh, if you've got a million dollars in a 401k it's not actually a million dollars because sooner right. or later the taxes are going to have to come out of that since they've never been taken before so you could just use as a simple measure what your effective rate is today and and do the math to lop off that at the federal and state level and yeah. say hey it's actually uh it's actually eight hundred thousand. it's not a million and that would probably be a better way to look at it because that eight hundred thousand is what you're actually going to be able to spend which is i think all we should really care about right and it, that also kind of blends in with the you know along the same lines similar discussion that we have with folks where we point out to them that every dollar that comes out of your pre-tax retirement plan whether it's 401k or ira that is taxed dollar one as ordinary income versus having some money in an investment account a taxable brokerage account where you're only responsible to pay tax on the gain and you know you may be actually in a lower bracket paying a long-term capital gain yeah. on an investment in a taxable account than every single dollar coming out of your retirement account as ordinary income it just gives you some control back if you have you know other buckets whether they're tax-free Roth dollars or brokerage account dollars and then that's again where we can tie that back into remaining cognizant of marginal tax thresholds to say hey we need to get x out of our investments this year like where can we draw from mm -hmm. to make sure that we're paying as little tax as possible but still getting what we need but if if everything's in one pile then it's it's very straightforward how you get there and there's there's no decisions for you uh, to make right so the idea with that is you're already above the threshold a, a certain tax threshold and then if the idea is to fill up that bucket as much as possible without bumping you up into the next bracket yeah so that makes sense and, and and what you're really doing with these strategies is it sounds like you're you're giving yourself building in some flexibility and you're you're giving yourself options so you can make decisions it's basically taken yeah. out of your hands if you only have pre-tax dollars it's it's eventually going to be mandated to you so it's outside of your control there's nothing to do at that point right I appreciate the topic of tax planning because I think that a lot of ideas that we hear around 
taxes, whether it comes from a tax preparer or an idea that a client has, are often focused myopically on reducing taxes right now for this year specifically. And just this thread in general, it's talking about like your lifetime effective rate. Like yeah. basically tax planning is all about making sure you pay the least amount of tax possible over your lifetime. And that might mean in any individual year doing something that that isn't the lowest tax proposition for right now. Mm. And we have to talk this sort of thing through with clients on our end. In a lot of cases, when it comes to taking distributions from accounts or or making decisions, you know, to uh, buy or sell investments when they're in taxable accounts, like we have to consider not only how do we fulfill the need that the client has right now today with the lowest tax bill possible, but like how does that impact their plan moving forward, and how do we make sure that they're not just kicking kicking the can and eventually ending up in a situation where the tax bill comes due eventually. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a balancing act and you have to, I think, pay attention to that sort of thing. And Mitchell speaks to that well in, in some of these topics on Twitter. This is true tax planning and not just vacuum yeah. 2021. Right. Like, how do I pay as little tax here's, right here's now as possible with, with no regard for 2022 or three or right. any year in yeah. the future? Yeah. I mean, that's a good, that's a really good point because I think we talk about that a lot of the, a, a lot on the investment planning side where we're talking, telling folks to, you know, not focus on just the next day, week, month, or year. It's really just about thinking long term and not being focused on the short term as hard as that is um it might mean doing some things harder up front maybe paying more tax than you air quote should or have to or right have now. to You're choosing to like spread a bill out over 10 years as opposed to kick the can to year eight right and then pay it all at one time like that you know those are those are the sort of things that we have control over but it's a matter of thinking in decades instead of minutes and that's easier said than done yeah that's gonna wrap up episode 375 of the podcast we hope you got some good takeaways and maybe think about tax planning differently this time around so thanks as always for listening and we will see you on episode 376 Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast.